Welcome to Regulate Tech and to our 31st episode. We have talked a lot about how technology policy more and more needs to be embedded in global agreements and different kinds of new institutions. But there are a couple of examples, interesting examples from history of such conventions and treaties that, that are worthwhile uh, looking more closely at to understand how they work, what they did, and what we might be seeing in the future. Um, one of the perhaps most foundational ones, and this sort of brings us back to a theme we've had in this podcast of reading foundational texts, is the so-called Budapest Cybercrime Convention or the Budapest Convention. So Richard, introduce us to the Budapest Convention. What was it? When did it come into yeah. force? And, and what was the impetus behind it? So the um, Budapest uh, uh, Convention on Cybercrime is actually a, a, a document, a, a product of something called the Council of Europe. And we've just got to remind ourselves here again that the Council of Europe is not the European Union nor is it the European Council, which is part of the European Union. The, the, the names get very confusing here. But the Council of Europe is actually an older body that essentially is the, the, the sort of administrative uh, entity for the European Convention on Human Rights adopted after the Second World War. So again, just reminds our history, Second World War, on the back of that, a whole bunch of different human rights instruments were drawn up. Obviously, Europe was the focus because that's where the war had been. Um, and they, they created this Convention on Human Rights, and then they created a kind of parallel body that goes with it, that kind of uh, acts as a, a forum whereby all the countries get together that, that are signatories to this convention. Um, and, and this so was in is, 1949, wasn't it? I think. Uh, 49, I think, yeah, when this, this yeah. Sort of creature was, was created. Um, and so the Council of Europe has sort of carried on. And, and broadly speaking, it is it, they include sort of countries that are, have a presence on the European landmass. I was just reading the other day a d debate about whether Kazakhstan should be admitted to membership. Uh, and apparently it has some territory west of the Volga River and therefore counts. Anyway, but it's, um, uh, it is the countries that we traditionally associate with the European Union and, and indeed Europe beyond the European Union, um, uh, plus... Uh, countries of Central and Eastern Europe, uh, sort of outside the European Union, excluding Belarus. Um, you'd be delighted to hear because Belarus applied to be a member of it, but then refused to, to get rid of the death penalty. And one of the conditions of being in this club is that you don't have the death penalty. And so Belarus, uh, um, I think, probably sort of preempted their own expulsion by by uh, refusing to reform and therefore is not sort of part of it. Um, but, but then, you know, Russia's part of it. Um, Turkey's part of it. These are all signatories to the Council of Europe. Yes, and it's interesting in a way because you will get to this, but the Council yep. of Europe um, has produced a number of different treaties, and it's it's one of the organisations that has the the sort of shortest to treaty time in a sense that it okay. it sort of it, it can create a treaty draft fairly quickly and then of course it takes time to to get it into final treaty format and even more time for the countries to to ratify it. i think we should talk a little bit about what, what a treaty yeah. is and you don't have to be a member of the club to be a signatory of the treaty you, do you you don't and that's what's sort of interesting here so, so they did yes they spent four years sort of debating this question and saying we should have a convention cybercrime 
you know, is growing in importance. And remember, this is 2001, so they're kind of ahead of the pack. And we'll get onto this later, but there is a new proposal before the United Nations, which is at the other end of the spectrum in terms of time taken. Uh, there's a new proposal over the last couple of years, which has been debated there, but, you know, 20 years later than this, this original one. So uh, four years, end of the 1990s, they're debating it. As you say, Nicholas, this is like super speedy. The advantage, obviously, the Council of Europe has is because essentially the foundational principles that there is a kind of common constitution in this European Convention on Human Rights as administered minister by the European Court of Human Rights. So so they're, they're a sort of reasonably tightly knit club, which is one advantage in terms of drafting something because they can say, look, you know, um, there are provisions on things like surveillance. Well, you know, we're all under the same provisions of a human rights convention when it comes to privacy, and therefore we can reach agreement on on language around surveillance and an international agreement on surveillance more easily than others might. Um, so they're able to do that. The treaty document simply says, look, we've agreed that this is a text that countries could adopt. And until countries like formally ratified and say, yes, we're prepared to be a party to it, it, it has no meaning, other, you know, sort of advisory until people formally ratify it. And then there are provisions within it that says, look, when a certain number of countries have ratified it, it now comes into force. And coming into force essentially means that somebody could seek to take action against a party uh, in terms of international law, and that's not something I'm going to pretend to be an expert on exactly how they do that. But, but at least theoretically, if a country uh, has signed up to an international treaty, uh, formally ratified it, and has not kind of de-exceeded from that treaty, then there would be some way to hold that country accountable under international law and varying degrees of how effective that might be in practice. But in theory, you can hold them accountable for the fact they breached the treaty. Now, say the advantage of this sort of European-ish club, and they've got observers from other places like the US and Canada, but the advantage of the European-ish club doing this is their starting point was kind of fairly similar and they could do this quickly. Big disadvantage is all the other countries in the world who are saying, look, hang on a minute, (laughs) you know, your cosy little European club has come up with this thing, but you didn't ask us what we thought. And so there's a whole bunch of other countries, and this has been the real limitation of the Budapest Convention, is that other countries, notably, you know, very major economies like Brazil and India, have always sort of felt this this is sort of unfair that they should be asked to sign up to something that they didn't actually get to shape, given you know, well, in India, it is bigger than all of the European Union. I, I don't know, by the time you throw in the other Council of Europe member states, maybe not, but it's still, it's pretty sizable. Oh, it's still Brazil, bigger. It's 820 sizable. million people in the Council of Europe countries Europe, and, and uh, India beats them hands billion. down. So there, there you go. go. There you go. They're, they're sort of bigger than the entirety of the Council of Europe and yet they weren't party to this and they, they've sort of been in and out. So, so the downside to say is that it's, uh, well, upside, it's done quickly downside, it may not get international acceptance. And that's kind of the status we've been in. Interestingly, though, even one of the countries that is a member of the Council of Europe, that is a big player, uh, and and will definitely feature in the new discussion, Russia, uh, declined to sign up to the treaty that you know, its own, in a sense, its own organization had created. And and their refusal to, to sign up was because they saw the treaty as in some way infringing on their own sovereignty. At least that was the argument they put forward. So yeah. even though they're a party to its negotiation, even though they're part of the Council of Europe, Russia says, yeah, but, you know, we're not willing to compromise our sovereignty in any way by signing up to a treaty that might force us to engage in some kind of 
international investigations or processes that we we don't think that we uh, should have to agree to or that over which we won't retain in sort of pure Russian control. So we need to take a few steps back here, I feel. We mm. need to sort of, we need to lay out the argument for why people felt that they needed to have a, a convention or a treaty on, on cybercrime. Let's talk about that. What's the what's the motivating force here? It's a, we have, it's 2001. This is when the this was written. It was sort of prepared yep. a couple of years before that. People were starting to see something in their environment, starting to realize something about the fundamental nature of the internet. And that sort of, that was what drove this. What's, what is it? that they're Sorry. starting to see so, so so they they're starting to see um, i mean uh, a few things that are driving this they're they're um so this is the time remember late 1990s the internet is moving from being this sort of academic thing to a mass consumer product and it's that shift to it being a mass consumer product that then triggers all of this and there are certain harms that they can see arising which are harms that are being done from one country to another over the internet. And that's why they need the Cybercrime Convention, because it's not something they, they realize they can deal with in, in domestic law. If the person committing the crime is in France and the victim is in the Netherlands, it, 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 the only way that the, the Dutch authorities protecting those victims in the Netherlands can kind of get any satisfaction is if France has put in place laws that would allow that person to be prosecuted and they saw some gaps and the areas where they that they looked at were um so, so they talk about this sort of harmonizing domestic criminal law to make sure that certain things are offenses everywhere um so the first thing that they look at is a whole set of offenses related to computers themselves and this is what in, and, and this common... is really important yeah let's 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 sort of just dig into that a bit because if you're in country a and you commit an act that's defined as a crime in country b but not in country a then there is no chance whatsoever that that you'll get any legal assistance that's sort of the very foundation for any legal assistance from one country to another is that they have the same definition of the criminal act right that's that's, that's right. really important and it's easy to overlook, but but it's a fundamental thing, right? It is. And at this time, um, again, we've got to remember that in, in many countries of the world, there was no law making it illegal to do what in, in the common parts is called hacking. But we hate that word, don't we, Nicholas? Because hacking it is, is very bad. Is, hacking is, is nice. Many hacking is Hacking bad. is good. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so... so um, uh, Hacker, in fact, people may be aware, the Facebook headquarters is on a road which they named Hacker Way um, because hacking and hack is part of the culture because, uh, again, hacking um, is a is is also used as a sort of jargon or slang for finding a different way to do things in computer code. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so it's not about necessarily gaining unauthorized access to other people's computer systems. So we, we should probably just call it by that because and the convention does focus on that, like, you know, accessing somebody else's computer system without permission. <laughs> um, you haven't been granted access, but you kind of find a sneaky way in. That's the first thing that they kind of want to deal with because they're starting to see that happen. Uh, people are, uh, you know, they're the sort of famous, it starts to get into the movies and things, the famous stuff of people accessing, I don't know, the NASA systems or the American Department of Defense. And uh, you start to see these sort of hacking attacks as they tend to get called, but really are attempts to gain unauthorized access to computer systems. And in many countries of the world, back then, 20 plus years ago, 
you go and you say, yeah, oh, this your person in your country tried to get into my defense systems and they go, well, nothing in our law says that you can't do that because uh, we haven't legislated for it. Um, uh, and so nothing there. And so the first thing the treaty does is it says, look, if you sign up to the treaty, you're making a commitment to pass a domestic law that that outlaws that kind of unauthorized access baseline kind of thing and then it goes on with some other provisions that sort of add to that and so, so you know uh, building the tools that allow people to do unauthorized access or and various other forms of kind of interference uh, with computer systems will also be illegal and so the first level of the motivation behind the the budapest convention was let's agree on what's unlawful here let's agree on what actually yeah. constitutes a crime in some way so we can start then looking at what is the second piece here which is how do we help each other to combat those crimes? That's right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's let's commit to all agreeing to make certain activities illegal. And and this isn't again. We should be clear: it's not without controversy, and and there are some extensions. So just just to sort of flesh out some of the controversy, part of it is sort of makes what again in the in the slang people might call hacking tools, but basically computer code that could be used to gain access to other people's systems. And, and you know, when we call it a virus, uh, something that is sort of gets backdoor access to a system, I think we'd all kind of really be comfortable. That's a bad thing, sort of pushing viruses out. But um, there's a thing called penetration testing, which is what good guys do, computer security people do, where they try and and test whether or not they can gain access to a system. And so there was actually a reasonable amount of controversy saying, look, hang on a minute. If you're saying it's illegal to possess software that does these things, in some cases, you may be also sweeping up the good guys. And that there has to be a sort of reasonable defense that, that um, yes, you've got some software that allows you to break into systems, but you're doing that for the right reasons, not for the wrong reasons. There's a bit of controversy there. And, and on that controversy, I think it's important to remember that it plays out against the background of a ginormous debate about crypto- cryptography that we just had right. at the end of the 90s, where possession of certain encryption tools, according to some proposals that were circulating at the time, should be criminalized. Just having access to those tools when it would in itself be a crime. Or exporting those tools, essentially exporting math, as it were. Yeah. It was something yeah. that people wanted to criminalize. So, so the entire community of tech policy people and computer scientists and and people who were working in human rights law were very, very sensitive to the notion that possession of software, be it encryption software, penetration testing software, or any other kinds of tools in any way, shape or form should be construed as a crime. So that was, was, you know, one of the roots of the controversy was that the idea that possession of of math or of software should be criminalized just didn't sit right with people. That's right. And and there's a sort of fair... um degree of hypocrisy involved as well here because as we now know from the Snowden revelations and and uh, all the stories around this Israeli company NSO that of course the governments were, were um, buying all of this technology and deploying all of these tools to gain you know unauthorized <laughs> access to people's systems but they're doing it as good guys rather than as bad guys so so there's sort of an element as well of eh, you know it's okay for you to do it it's not okay for us to do it what's going on here and 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 that also uh, as well spreads into there are other areas where um Today, I mean, there's a lot of talk about these ransomware attacks. Mm-hmm. To be clear, this is actually where the convention's qu- quite far-sighted because it does think about that. It actually uses language about you know getting access to systems and deleting or corrupting or doing sort of dodgy stuff with the data once you're inside. So it's not just accessing the system; it's it's messing around with the data when you're in there, which is exactly what a ransomware attacker does. So again, if 
if um, countries uh, signed up to the, the convention and they implemented these laws properly, they will have the kind of laws that they need on the books in order to deal with ransomware people, because that is squarely in, in the sights of what this was aiming at, like gaining access to systems and doing dodgy things in there. So there's one other area that I think you know is worth uh, just pausing for a moment on, where, where I think, again, it could be quite controversial, and that's um, what are known as denial of service attacks, which again are you know the classic kind of thing that they were trying to go after, which is where you uh, um, try and make a service inaccessible uh, using technical means, the, the classic thing is what they call a distributed denial of service attack, where you you basically get hundreds of thousands of computers to all go and ask for a website, you know, a website for its data at the same time. So you're not trying to get break into the website, you're not trying to do anything with their data, you're just overloading it <laughs> with lots and lots of requests, but very deliberately because you know that if you overload their server, no one else can get there. Again most circumstances we would kind of go well yeah i think that's right that should be criminalized but there have been instances including quite recently where for example it's a a racist website that's propagating racist hate speech and uh you know it's hosted in a country where they refuse to take any action over it and activists will get together and do what they would think of as good denial of service uh, because they're trying to make this sort of thing inaccessible and and, you know, nowadays you can sometimes buy technology. There's a company called Cloudflare, which if you see them in the news, they're a very popular one, which which will kind of protect sites against these denial of service attacks. But again, if you're like a deeply unpleasant, far-right, racist outfit, then it may well be that Cloudflare has refused to do business with you as well. And so you can actually take these sites down. Again, a little bit dual use and 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 quite a large element of judgment. Are you saying denial of service should always be criminal and the intent of the convention is to make sure that you're always able to be prosecuted or is there good denial of service and bad denial of service like there's good hacking and bad hacking but those are sort of judgment questions i think that come out of any agreement of this nature yeah so we're 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 looking at the motivations here and the first thing we found was that we need to agree on what actually constitutes harm and, and illegal behavior and that's one part of of the convention and and really getting to the heart of that can be controversial because you need to to you need to take some really hard decisions. But the next motivation, mm. the next reason that this was an important convention was that there's something changing with the nature of evidence, right? That's right. And yeah. so, so, what, yeah, so the, the, the bulk of it, so and I should, we should just though reflect, there's one other little bit as well. Just, it's a, um, as well as the computer-related offenses, they did try and create a level playing, a level playing field around a c- common set of offenses which they sort of saw as being commonly carried out across border. And those are fraud, forgery, uh, child abuse images, and uh, uh, are always our favorite um, illegally copied copyright material. So, so again, just there was yes. a, there was the computer offenses bit, which was sort of novel and in many cases wasn't legislated for. And then they did sort of pick out a few elements. And again, we may come on later to talk about the new Russian-driven proposal for a United Nations Convention, which is along similar lines. And, and what you'll see there is the, the Russians just add a much, much longer list of offences where they say, look, everyone should should have you know, laws. But some partly kind of the, playing field in that. the motivation behind adding those, those sort of existing crimes was that the nature of the evidence was changing. Uh, so exactly. if you're talking about cross-border fraud, right, then suddenly yeah. something happens if you're doing it with the help of a computer. That, that's right. So then that brings us on to the, the sort of real uh, judicial meat of it, which says, look, for these new hacking offences, for this 
category of offences that we've picked up on as very likely to be cross-border and and happening over the internet, we need a bunch of agreements where we will cooperate with each other about data and and so there are requirement or there are uh, uh, somewhere between sort of requirement and guidance. It's kind of saying, you know, uh, you sh- you should have stuff in place, not not in painful detail, but uh, along these lines that would would permit and enable you to do certain things. And those include things like I'm um, looking at traffic data, which is commonly your subscriber data, which would identify people doing things. That there's language around uh, surveillance, collecting data. Um, and, and how that should be possible in some cases. And then there's a lot of language. Uh, also, there's language around search. Uh, so searches, which we sometimes like neglect a little in, in cyber world. But, you know, when you've actually got a serious investigation going on, you, you go and find the premises where the computers are and you search them just, just like you would search uh, for illegal drugs or anything else. I mean, you're going and doing a digital search. So there's provisions around interception, capturing traffic data, search, and then a bunch of, of provisions that kind of say, and here's how we'll do, you know, cross-border cooperation in all of these areas. So ways for governments to ask for mutual assistance from other governments. Um, there's actually a provision on on governments sort of voluntarily providing data to other governments when they've come across something in their investigation that's interesting to a third country. So there's lots and lots about, you know, how one should sort of exchange data. And, and we should disentangle these, I think, because one thing here is that the nature of the evidence is changing. It's becoming more ephemeral. That It's more important, for example, to be able to preserve evidence, to make sure that that you timestamp digital evidence, because by its very nature, it's easy to tamper with anything that's digitally stored. And so preserving it, making sure that it's not deleted or that it doesn't disappear is sort of figures largely in the minds of, of the people sitting down to draft this convention. And then on top of that, I think one of the realizations that, that ultimately drive a, a lot of this too, is that of course, countries have faced this problem before when it comes to fraud. Of course, they've seen you know the challenge of cross-border criminal, you know, criminal activity before, but the tools that they had to resolve that were so incredibly inept when it came to digital crimes that suddenly they realized that they needed something entirely new. Because what let's just walk through how you would typically do something like uh, ask the US for assistance in a legal investigation before you had some kind of collaboration between countries in a treaty or or some committee agreement. There's something called a mutual legal agreement, um, uh, a mutual legal assistance treaty, an MLAT, the MLAT. So talk, that was what you had recourse to before you had any any faster means. So what's an MLAT? Yeah, so, so there's these are, I mean, this sort of principle goes way back. So somebody, you know, and, uh, committed a murder in, in the UK and hopped on a transatlantic boat, you know, 100 years ago, sort of went back to the US. There may have been a requirement. You want to, you want to get that person back, so so you start start developing law around things like extradition. But you may also want to get evidence. It may be that uh, you need to carry out a search of the premises where those people are in the United States in order to investigate a crime that took place in the United Kingdom. And from a United States point of view, in that case, you know they don't have probable cause or any good reason to go and search somebody's premises uh, in respect of any victim in the United States. There's no complainant there saying, I've got a problem, but there is somebody in the in the UK. And so they developed these mechanisms essentially over the years for the authorities in the UK to, to, to 
effectively apply to a court in the United States, who are the only people who can actually authorize a search in the territory of the United States, to say, hey, court of the United States, we would like you to search this premises to find evidence that's useful in our court case back in the UK, because we've got victims here that need uh, satisfaction. And so you sort of, out of that mechanism, you you build a whole legal structure. Um, while the while the sort of crimes are few and far between, <laughs> these things work. But then you get to a point where, which is you know a recurrent problem that you've got now, which is that if the crimes are happening at scale, and you need a lot of evidence to be collected, for example, to assist your case, then the courts just get backed up, and. Again, just think of this dynamic that it could be happening in all different directions, but essentially a court is being asked to sort of set aside time and make an effort to issue a search warrant or whatever it is, provide some data, get hold of something to assist a a third country. And it's actually got a backlog of crimes taking place in their own country with their own victims. So, like, you know, which which are you going to prioritize? Let's just be honest. Like, it's human nature. Of course, you're going to prioritize the stuff in your own country. And, and not only that, because if a court in your home country actually gets you that warrant, so you need a warrant first from your home country to show that you have legal cause in your home country. That's sort of one of the basis of an MLAT. Then you have to take it to the other country. And it's not sure that you yeah. take it to a court in the other country. You may well take it to a small subdivision of the foreign affairs or state department in the US, for example, who are managing 60 or 70 different MLATs at the same time. And you're required by these MLATs to do this in an extraordinarily paper-bound process. We're we're talking faxy meals here, right? Sending them back and forth. And you're filling out, and this this is so interesting because there's a detailed form that you're supposed to fill out for an MLAT. And if you miss a detail, you can't just sort of call somebody up and ask because of the the sort of rule of law heaviness of the but you send the entire form back and say it's not complete and so this process that that could work for a different time with different kinds of evidence and, and different pace of criminal activity turns out to sort of in the internet age be fairly useless to be honest and, and this is something that's still not fully resolved, um, it, you know. And again, you'll see uh, reports in the in the press. I mean, very commonly, it's sort of a European judge or or police officer or interior minister who's frustrated, typically with a US company because they say they're not getting the cooperation they want in terms of data needed for investigations. Um, and actually, even within Europe itself. So so this is a common thing. It's, it's certainly not been resolved. Part of the intent of the convention was to try and you know, give it a boost and put in place, a, a, in a sense, a sort of permissive framework as a signatory to the treaty, you know, you were giving yourself permission to to hand over data to other countries when you might not normally do so. But you hit two of these obstacles. One is the bureaucratic one we've just described. These are like, you know, serious processes of law. They're built on processes of law that, that were intentionally quite heavy <laughs> uh, because they're supposed to act as a, a barrier to handing out data willy-nilly. But you also hit, um, fr- frankly, sort of uh, sovereignty questions, you know, some quite significant yeah. sovereignty questions. That even if under the treaty it's you're, you're permitted to hand data over to other countries, um, uh, you may not wish to do so. And I think particularly if the data involves your own citizens. So, so if you think for a minute that, you know, that the request from the foreign country may well be for data uh, related to a crime that is alleged to have been committed by somebody who's one of your citizens against a citizen in the foreign country. And, and so you're going to go and say, 
uh, carry out some kind of search data collection exercise and hand over the data of one of your citizens to the authorities in a third country who then potentially are going to try and extradite your citizen and and kick off a whole sort of prosecution process. Like, that feels uncomfortable <laughs> a lot of the time, and, and particularly if there are varying human rights standards between the different countries in question. Uh, and you imagine from a governmental point of view, if you did that, and and some kind of abuse of the human rights of your citizen took place. You know, it was a patently unfair court case they were subjected to, or they're subjected to some kind of uh, hugely disproportionate punishment. That's not going to feel great. Um, and actually, we've seen that really interesting in the UK. You know, with all this structure in place, the way it's supposed to work. Go back to the earlier in the conversation is that you know a a hacker in the United Kingdom, uh, well, uh, uh, who's hacked computer systems in the US. Well, now it is an offence to do that unauthorised access in both countries. And the United States kind of within this general framework is perfectly entitled to come to the British authorities and say, you know, we've identified somebody in Britain who's been breaking into the NASA systems or whatever, and we want you to send them here to be prosecuted. Um, and there's been two or three very, very high profile and controversial cases really on the basis that, look, I mean, candidly, the people who did the unauthorised access could be very young uh, yeah. uh, uh, not you know, sort of. One has a certain degree of human sympathy that they may not um, uh, necessarily have understood the seriousness of what they were doing. It was a game, and, and they shouldn't have done it, and it's illegal. But you kind of assume, look, in a British court, they they will get a punishment. It, it is illegal. You know, something's going to happen, but it's not going to be like life imprisonment. You look at the threat that they're under in the United States, and it's life imprisonment in one of these sort of evil high security penitentiary somewhere in 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 Colorado and uh, and there's a lot of sympathy in the UK to say hey yeah they did something wrong but we don't actually want them extradited and you've seen two or three cases sort of dismissed on that basis even though as i say the the actual sort of very clear intent of the convention was that countries should be able to haul uh, um, people uh, cross borders who had broken the law on both sides. So but quite complex when it comes to actually putting it in place in practice, even though I say in, in theory, it's supposed to be sending a message out saying, look, you're not, uh, you're not um, uh, whatever, impervious to prosecution just because you've done it to a system in another country. Uh, we, the, the local authorities are going to cooperate with them in making sure you're punished. It sort of it highlights a bug in the treaty construction, one could argue, because you know if you're harmonizing the definitions of what constitutes a crime, not also harmonizing some kind of sort of punishment space or scale, uh, means that you can have wildly different outcomes in different countries, and this is sort of what you're describing with the UK US yeah. uh, case. But if you had harmonized. The, the punishment scale or sort of the, the term uh, determination for these um, these crimes as well, or if you had just given a hint of what we think is reasonable, you might actually have had a much easier time to think about extradition and um, uh, sort of generally you wouldn't even have had to do that because you could take somebody to court in the country where they are and they could have served their time there to the extent that would have been a part of, of their 
uh, of their uh, verdict. But yeah. but so let's just recap. So we're sort of we're bringing people with us. We have uh, we have identified, I think, at least three really important reasons for drafting the Cybercrime Convention. It's the 1990s, and we're seeing that computers are used to engage in stuff that is entirely new, and where we haven't just decided whether it's a crime or not in different countries, and we're trying to harmonize the definitions of what constitutes a crime. Second thing is we're realizing that in order to have a chance at taking care of these crimes and a number of other already established older crimes, the the nature of evidence is changing so fast that if we don't have a good way of collecting evidence, preserving evidence, transmitting evidence, there's there's not going to be a way to to prosecute these crimes, even if we have defined them in the same way. And then thirdly, the the old means of collaborating cross-border simply jumped cut it anymore they're they're sort of not fit for purpose so we need a we need a convention and so we're, we're now at the point where we decided that we need the convention and we, it needs all of the different provisions that that you you laid out what what is the main argument against a convention like this seems like a reasonable yeah. case we're making here why why was there criticism and controversy and not just about the individual provisions but about the treaty as such yeah. So, so, I mean, obviously, as we discussed a little while ago, the, the starting point was like, who drew it up and who got to be part of it? So mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that's one question of just, just you know, are, are, does the convention reflect your interests? And again, interestingly, there, there's this new document that's been published um, uh, under the auspices of the United Nations, which I say was sort of Russian, largely Russian originated. And, and you can see in that, that the sort of offences they focused on are very different. Um, and so, so yes, had it been drawn up by a different group of countries, it might have had different areas of emphasis within it. So that's the sort of first criticism is, does it cover the stuff that is your highest priority from a governmental point of view? Um, and then I, I think the the more fundamental sort of question, which is for any country, is um, are you in fact willing uh, to trust other countries? I mean, this is, this is I guess, a, a sort of universal thing for treaties generally. And you, you'd see it in, you know, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. It's like, you know, am I, I'm taking some pain here. Do I trust the other countries to honour the agreement and also take some pain? Um, so it's a classic sort of, uh, quid pro quo type of agreement, and so I, th- I think there there are. Um, uh, I mean, Russia was sort of explicit in saying we're not going to enter into a quid pro quo, and we see the the sort of ramifications of that failure now, where the suggestion is that quite a few of the people doing these ransomware attacks today are based in Russia, and that there is some kind of again, Russian government might might deny this, but some sort of informal agreement that if uh, um, people in Russia uh, sort of compromise computer systems outside Russia, they won't get prosecuted. They'll only get prosecuted if they start attacking Russian systems. That's the allegation. Um, and so, you know, we, we've seen that failure. But, so, so, but there you can see this sort of high level of distrust. And you saw it throughout the US uh, elections between that example, sort of Russia and US. That That's explicit, but implicit. <laughs> Uh, are, are um, you know, all sorts of views that governments take about other governments and whether or not they're properly fulfilling the treaty. And what you don't want in any treaty for it to be lopsided, you've done your bit, you know, you're prosecuting all the bad guys in your country who are compromising the systems in country X, you're willing to extradite people, you're willing to execute search warrants, but the authorities in country X are not playing their part. So I think that's the uh, sort of primary criticism. And then some of these sovereignty questions, I think, again, are real. Are you signing up to a treaty where, you, you, you know, if, you, if you're operating in good faith, you don't want to have to breach the terms of the treaty, 
but there may be some fundamental legal rights that your citizens have that will run into conflict with the requirements under the treaty. So if you're, if you're going to execute a search warrant or collect data on behalf of a third country, can you do that in a way that is actually consistent with your own domestic legal framework? Um, and if not, does signing the treaty mean you're going to have to go and change a bunch of your laws in order to permit uh, the activities that, that the treaty obligates you to. And that may be, in, in, again, with a lot of treaties, that often is the stumbling block. That, um, that In other areas, there's a, a UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, for example. And I know when politicians look at that, it's like, well, if we sign up to that, do we have to change our own legislation in terms of children's rights? So it, is there a bunch of legislation that we will have to change? Are we willing to do that? And are we compromising our own sovereignty because we're letting someone else dictate the changes we make to our legislation rather than deciding to do it ourselves? Wasn't there also a line of argument that said if we're going to establish these new crimes and these new methods of collaboration, the level overall in all of these states individually of surveillance and the the sort of the, the correlated effect on individual privacy is going to be quite massive? Because suddenly, instead of just having one nation sort of preserving its laws and surveilling its citizens to a degree that's under democratic oversight in that country, we're going to have all of these different countries go potentially asking about our, our citizens. That the, the overall effect of harmonization of something like cybercrime legislation actually leads to a higher um, tension or pressure on, on privacy overall. Yeah, I think that is a concern. Although interestingly, the the um, the treaty does uh, uh, talk about illegal interception. So, and and again, uh, when we go way back, way back twenty years, you need to remember <laughs> that quite a few countries did not necessarily explicitly make interception of communications illegal. They would have a very permissive regime. And of course, it suited the authorities in those countries not to do that. So a lot of countries, I mean, the UK really had to tidy its legislation up under something called the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act, RIPA. Um, and that was only in the like early 2000s. I think it was 2001, about this time. So, so so yes, there was a concern that it would spread. But at the same time, signing up, maybe one of the first occasions on which some governments would have explicitly been saying yes i am going to make it illegal to do interception for the general population and then i'm going to create a regime a specific regime for governments to do it um uh, and i say that maybe in many cases be have been quite a sort of blank air at the time so so there were there were benefits to the treaty in terms of an explicit commitment uh, um to prevent interception uh, except we're legally authorized, but you're right. There's a fear that there would be a lot more requests um, coming cross border. Again, I think that's actually been quite interesting. My experience, certainly, I, I was surprised about how little cross border activity there was, even with this all this sort of stuff being in place. Um, you know, it was not as as common as you expected, and I think there's still even today there's kind of an assumption that it's just too much hassle for law enforcement authorities uh, to, to try and investigate things where the you know, perpetrators are in another country, unless it's very, very serious indeed. Um, so that's persistent. So they're not uh, going through the process of you know, requesting data at massive scale from other countries. 
No, it's fair. And I, I think it's it's also, inter- I, I think we might also say that if you look at cybercrime overall, it's not an unreasonable hypothesis that it somewhat mirrors e-commerce. And we know e-commerce is not that much cross-border because people prefer to actually shop in their, their own country. It's sort of a, yeah. a general sense of trust and language and all of those different things. And and you could almost suspect that, that cybercrime actually has some kind of similarity in pattern, that it doesn't happen cross-border as much because it's actually easier to commit crime in a context where you're not about what works and doesn't work in terms of, of sort of tricking people. You see attempts now and then of auto-translated phishing emails, for example, but they're, I, can't, I can't think that they're horribly effective to the vast majority of the people who get them, although there will always be cases, of course. Now, let's. so we, we have sort of looked at the effects. We've looked a little bit at the discussion. We're 20 years down the road. What would you hmm. say is the... Let's let's talk about what you think is the greatest impact that the Budapest Convention has had on tech policy and the way we think about these issues today. Yeah, I, I mean, I would have said it's... Um, I think it has uh, enabled a certain level of cooperation that kind of wasn't there again within limits it's not it's not uh, realized the promise i think that the people who draft it would have had that there would be these sort of seamless cross-border investigations but again to your point just now i think and maybe the demand patterns have been a little different from those that were anticipated um so i don't think it's led to that seamless uh cooperation but it certainly it's created a benchmark people talk about it e- even the countries like india that didn't want to be a signatory ha- have kind of you know, used as a reference point. And then interestingly, I think just a couple of years ago, there was say there was a push for a new UN level convention, which overcomes this sort of European thing. Um, it took place, I think it was driven through the UN General Assembly. And I was just looking at the list of names that the first on the list, I think was Belarus. And then it was Russia, Myanmar, uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the, the Bolivarian uh, um, state of, of Venezuela, etc. So you imagine that their countries at the side, but but their text, whilst whilst having sort of embellishments that might make you nervous, the core of it is still the Budapest text. Um, so they've sort of wrapped up the Budapest text, a lot of it, w- with other stuff that, as I say, I think perhaps we should be rightfully uh, um, sort of nervous about. Uh, but it's so so it's still the reference point. It's still like this is the framework that look if you're you know what are the things you need to fix. Uh, in order to make um, law enforcement work in in the internet age, well, they are the things that are in the convention. So I think it did a pretty good job of sort of describing the things you need to fix. And then beyond that, they say it's a lot of it is the comes back to good old fashioned politics, uh, international relations. Um, you referred earlier to sort of common definitions around around uh, you know punishments and things, but there's also I think quite a gap between different countries about how they feel about certain activities. You know, one person's information terrorist is another person's information freedom fighter. So you you come back to you know some of the big um, exposés we've seen the Edward Snowden expose, the the WikiLeaks files, all of that stuff. You know, which in a sense sort of sits within the framework. Well, there is no consistent international view, I think, on whether those were you know, things that should be prosecuted with the full force of the law or or legitimate whistleblowing. And so we're still sort of in that zone of uh, quite a lot of, um, I think, sort of inconsistency about how people feel about certainly those information-based cyber crimes as opposed to the purely financially motivated ones. And then more recently, 
we have election interference and misinformation and and uh, again in the in interest in the new un text that's sort of kicking around they try and define uh, misinformation now as one of these things that should be included in the convention uh, but very wide, widely different views about what should constitute sort of illegal misinformation. So you start to bring that in, everything gets much more complex. And, and I think I think you're right. I mean, it's fair to say that it established uh, as an understanding of the problem, sort of a mental model yeah. in which a lot of people thought, which was, you know, we need, we have an entirely new set of crimes. We have old crimes being committed with new means. We have a new set of evidence and our old tools aren't there anymore. This led to collaboration within the European Union and the development of a lot of legislation that enabled law enforcement access and collaboration within the European Union, for example. It led to discussions about comity agreements between different states where they would treat each other's legal um, uh, law enforcement access equally and and so i think i think if you want to credit it with something you could credit it with understanding and laying out the problem but you can also see in the history of the budapest convention how hard it is to extend beyond the basics because they had a second yeah. protocol didn't they? they they did they had a protocol on on racist and xenophobic speech which again reflected i think the the concerns of the council of europe at the time um and so that was added on and uh probably a sort of pretty consistent view. Actually, the the whole thing about racist, xenophobic speech and international agreements is fascinating because there's a lot of sort of uh, 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 language and protocols that have been put out both through the United Nations and through the Council of Europe, you know, so unequivocally condemning racist and xenophobic speech and calling for its criminalization. And yet... um, There are a number of countries where, you know, constitutional rights to freedom of expression would not tolerate the criminalization of speech of that nature, and the United States being the the standout example. And so it's one of those curious things where I think everyone would, at a moral level, condemn racist and xenophobic speech. But when it comes to, say, legally criminalizing it, I think there's a lot uh, of very, very divergent views, actually, also including within Europe. Um, uh, within Europe, there I've done the analysis in the past, and there are some countries, countries like Germany, where you know just saying something mildly offensive uh, may take you into the realm of criminality, and that there are other countries. I guess Sweden's probably an example. Netherlands, where yeah. the law is quite clear, you can say pretty, pretty like wild and offensive things, and and no, you're not going to face criminal criminal prosecution for that. And so this this uh, protocol was attached on, which basically said. Uh, you know, like we've said that you need to have laws criminalizing illegal copyright material and criminalizing child abuse material. Uh, um, you are also signing up to have laws criminalizing racism, xenophobic speech, which can then be enforced on a cross-border basis. And that, as I say, I think is uh, uh, partly implemented. Uh, those countries that already had laws in, you know, criminalizing racism, xenophobic speech, fine. I'm not sure it's sort of encourage any others to do so because again back to the sovereignty question you're not going to change your fundamental constitutional principles on freedom of expression just because you've signed up to a treaty on cybercrime like that doesn't work that way and so either you won't sign the protocol um or you might sign the protocol with the intent of doing something but find that your constitutional court tells you you can't and and the the signature the cybercrime convention is not enough to overturn x years of 
you know, jurisprudence that says, no, that kind of speech is fine. Or, or you would and, just interpret it your own way and say, well, you know, we don't regard that as racist or xenophobic enough, even if you might. And therefore, our law, we have got a law that criminalizes it, but only a very, very narrow like definition. And that's good enough for the treaty. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I think I think also shows that it's hard to to expand uh, the basic set of things we agree on to to especially to speech and information. I think that's that's yeah. a very tricky thing. The the other uh, addition that was being uh, at least considered at some time, I think as as late as in two thousand and eighteen, was to do more on law enforcement access. But it was yeah. sort of overtaken by the work within the European Union and between individual countries. But but I think. You, most people realize that there's there's still a lot of friction in this law enforcement access or assistance uh, work out there. And that's something that we have talked about before, where we believe that that's going to be a, a, an area where we'll see more treaty work in the future. Um, yeah. But perhaps bilateral yeah. rather than multilateral? Or what do you think? I, I think so. I think, I mean, I think bilateral, um, uh, I think I've talked about as multi-bilaterals. <laughs> you need a lot yes. of bilateral agreements, really because it's so sensitive. Um, uh, you know, the extent to which you're willing to remove friction is very dependent on the specifics of the legal system, the kind of offences you're talking about. Um, and, and so I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure any country would feel comfortable. I'm not sure we should, all of us feel comfortable where, where you get to kind of, automated access or you've removed all the friction the friction is purposeful so you don't want too much friction it's a serious you know it's a serious offense somebody's in another country the data's desperately needed in order to or the data's in another country the people may all be in your country and these are actually some of the most frustrating cases where the victim and the perpetrator are both for example in the uk but the data that you need to convict the perpetrator is in the us so so you know um there may not be sovereignty issues in that sense, but still you want a certain amount of friction just to make sure that you're not handing over data in a way that would lead to a human rights abuse. Um, but getting that right is very particular to particular countries and particular legal systems, I think has to be negotiated, I say, uh, uh, on a multi-bilateral basis, which I, I think is feasible mm. um, if the will is there um, for people to go and do that. Um, but it, which it, it just on, yeah. No, sorry. Which which makes this new UN treaty really interesting because that's that's an attempt to build a global treaty around something where we think that the Budapest Convention probably reached as far as you could, and what's left now is probably bilateral or regional harmonization. So, so let's talk a bit about the UN treaty. What expects yeah. except for let's let's start with with the scope of the UN treaty. Yeah. What do you think so, that so, will mean? Yeah, I mean, essentially, it takes the Cyber Crime Convention, it sort of updates it in other bits. It has a definition of a botnet in there, which is a very, like, 2021 thing that wasn't a, a 2001 thing. But then it throws in a whole list of offences, which, which again, if you're familiar with Russian uh, internet law, they, they are very familiar to you. So so in, in Russian law, they're very focused on, on I mean, again, worthy subjects, but not necessarily criminalized in other areas. Uh, encouragement of self-harm and suicide is one. Uh, encouragement of drug use is another. Um, there are various categories of extremism, uh, which I think are much, much more controversial uh, because the definition of extremism, certainly as the Russian authorities interpret it, can include, you know, people who are opposed to the government, um, otherwise known as opposition. Um, and so so you can sort of see a whole category of offences in there that, re- that reflect 
the state of Russian law and their, their sort of priorities. Um, so, so that and that's where it may fall down. And then there is this piece about you know sort of um, putting out misinformation. There's some stuff in there, uh, which again, you, you know, they're, depending on where you're sitting, it may be that you're um, comfortable uh, with the idea you see misinformation as a threat that should be criminalised. Or you may be very uncomfortable because you see it as, as uh, something that can be weaponized. Again, mis- misinformation is the opposition's campaign <laughs> material and never the government's campaign material. Um, so, so I think that's what we have to watch out. So, so say a great big long list of additional provisions, uh, but the, within a framework that, broadly speaking, is very similar to the original Budapest framework. I think the interesting question from a procedural point of view, and certainly when this was launched, it was a... Uh, it came out from motion from the General Assembly, which is a sort of majority of member states. Uh, I think the United States opposed it. You know, the, the countries that were already signatories to Budapest, I think, were uncomfortable with this particular method and saw it as uh, not necessarily the most democratic or or kind of positive development. And um, there is now a text, but you know, they, the vote was won and the, they've been working on a text. Be interested to see how far it goes. Um, it's possible that it gets pruned back again. It's quite possible it just gets bogged down forever. Um, and it's never actually going to come out because, say, there's so much in there that I think other countries might find difficult to, to accept. Um, or, it, you know, again, if there's a majority view, um, it, uh, similar to the way the Budapest Convention sort of set out, I, again, I'm not the world's expert on the UN's internal procedures, but I guess we can get to a point where this thing is published and then there'll be a coalition of countries that sign up to it, maybe sort of inverse of the Budapest Convention. Uh, so the first signatories will be the Russias and you know countries that are not necessarily part of Budapest. And then we'll have two competing instruments, the UN one and the Budapest one. The Budapest one thinner, a little bit out of date. Uh, the UN one... Uh, maybe too fat, uh, you know, up to date, but too fat in terms of the stuff that's in it and and the levels of cooperation that might be required. Yeah, it's a sixty-nine page document to compare with the the twenty-two page document of yeah. the Budapest Convention. It seems, and and I mean, it's it's a very real opportunity, a possibility that that it will it will never never go anywhere because they won't get enough uh, traction around it. But even so, it's it's sort of it has perhaps served its purpose because it signaled the willingness to discuss this. It sort of answered the question that the Budapest Convention poses. Why are you not a signatory to the Budapest Convention? That is, as the Budapest Convention gains more and more signatories over time and becomes more and more established, a more and more pressing question. And one way to answer it, of course, is to launch your own and say, no, no, we should have this instead. This is a broader one that has the inclusive points that you made in the beginning, which I think are the right points. Everyone should be around the table when you're negotiating something like this. But on the other hand, everyone around the table doesn't really seem to work that well. It's really hard when you're when you're sort of negotiating treaties. So, so I think that in a sense, you can see this new convention as as a response to the question being yeah. asked by the now twenty year old Budapest Convention to the people who didn't sign up. Uh, where are you now, and why are you not doing this in a time when the pressure on cybercrime is increasing? And you know, the Biden administration has signaled that some of these these cyber crimes actually cross into the territory of casus belli, cause for war. Because yeah. if you're attacking some of the infrastructure and some of the really important stuff in a country, that's not a crime anymore. That's That yeah. has gone over the line. And so I think that this question of what constitutes a crime, where the line is to casus belli or cause of war, is one that's becoming more and more intense, which sort of provides a background against which you can 
understand the UN Convention, don't you think? Exactly. I mean, you know, on the face of it, uh, this is a good thing in terms of strengthening the tools we've got to deal with these very, very serious sort of infrastructure-based attacks. And, and you know, if I were sitting in the in the White House, I'd be getting, being able to kind of make uh, people in other countries who are carrying out these ransomware attacks on essential infrastructure feel nervous that they're going to get, you know, locked up for long periods of time would be very high priority. And if I think they're in Russia, and I think that, you know, this convention would be a way to make it so that the Russians would crack down on them and make it easier for me to extradite them, I should be all in favor of it. My nervousness is going to be, though, is this a sort of uh, Trojan horse where where they're going to come back and go, well, those opposition activists that you've got in your country, uh, they're now carrying out a cybercrime, and I would like to have them extradited back to me in return. And so you, you can see, you know, the bones of where this this debate is going to be from a from a, uh, a US or sort of Western perspective, what you want is every country in the world to crack down on on what you perceive of as cyber criminals, people hacking your banks and financial systems and local authorities and health services and so on. Um, what you're not going to want is to sign up to anything that where you're agreeing to hand over people who are, from your point of view, expressing legitimate political interests, uh, political opinions that are just unwelcome to people in another country. Uh, but again, huge amounts of judgment as to what's legitimate speech, what's illegitimate speech. We can never get away from it in these discussions um, uh, because that's where either this is going to succeed or founder. If there is a, you know, the, the text of the treaty doesn't tell you what constitutes legitimate speech and illegitimate speech. That's something that governments have to understand of each other. And that's where I still think there is quite a big gap that needs to be um, closed before a treaty like this could be signed. But it does validate one of the earlier predictions that we've made on on uh, on our our podcast, which is that we'll see more international collaboration rather than less. We'll see more treaties and institutions being built up. And I guess that if if we if there is one advantage to the UN over the Council of Europe is that the UN has institutional muscle uh, yes. in a way that the Council of Europe does not. And if there's anything. I think is really important if you're going to put something like this in place is that there is an institution that can carry it and enforce it at least at a baseline level so it doesn't just become um, a set of agreements that are interpreted differently in every single signatory country. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is a thing to watch. And it's interesting because we were sort of like uh, looking back at the Budapest Convention, thinking about doing this classic text episode was the first time I'd really spent a lot of time like focused on the fact that there is this new UN process going on. And it's quite interesting yeah. just how something that is so material actually has not had a lot of coverage or engagement. It's not been very high on the agenda. And yet it's like potentially hugely material. And again, that may reflect in part where it's come from and a, a sort of sense that you know it's, it's an odd thing out there that's come from the Russians, therefore we don't need to focus on it. But it's got a lot of support in the UN, a lot of countries did line up behind it. Um, it's something we should definitely keep an eye on as we think about tech regulation. And with that, uh, I think we'll draw our conclusion and uh, say that we've been discussing the Budapest Convention that celebrates 20 years since it was originally launched. Um, and uh, I think it's a really interesting text. We'll link to it, I think, from our, our show notes. Um, and you can find this podcast on your website, which is www.regulate.tech 
Brilliant. If you have any questions, ideas, or if you have suggestions for other things you want us to talk about, don't hesitate to reach out. And as always, thank you so much for listening and tune in next week.